Binge eating. What a topic, right? Um, oops, I think I did something, Justina. Hopefully I didn't mess up your, your microphone there. Um, as I was just saying before we went live, this is a very, very big topic. And as much as I thought I knew about some of the, I guess I'll just say basics, this admittedly is not my field of expertise, there was some really cool stuff that I think some researchers have looked at that, that bring kind of a foundational nature to the question that I have asked many of you in sessions like this for the last year and a half. Uh, if you recall, whenever we discuss things like binge eating, uh, any kind of eating disorder, we always ask that question. Is it all about the food or does it have nothing to do with the food? And, and th this, I, I found, I, I went through a few different research studies and avenues of just kind of questioning the topic in general of just binge eating. And it seems that a lot of the researchers are really focused on that question, a, a very central tenant of binge eating and binge eating disorder is what causes it, which is, you know, an obvious concern. Uh, but even when we get into some of the uh, maybe emotional or, or emotional intelligence components. Uh, I think you're going to see a couple things here that, that may surprise you a little bit. So let's just dig right in and, and see what we can learn here together. So the main study I looked at from the International Journal of Eating Disorders, not, not too long ago, 2006, 2007, is, as I said, you know, what is driving the binge in the binge eating disorder and then if you look at the rest of the, the title, a, a proposed examination of precursors and consequences. So that second part and consequences we'll talk about toward the end, uh, because that was one of the things I think surprised the researchers. It, it was not what they were looking for, but what, the way they designed the study, this came up as one of those, which often happens in research, like, wow, why didn't we think of that? We weren't even looking for it wasn't even in our hypothesis, but geez, like that was a really profound, you know, maybe even more important than what we were searching for. So we'll get to that, but let's first look at the etiology, the, you know, the precursor, what, what is happening in somebody's life, in their mind, in the context of maybe their day or their behavior that actually causes this. And, you know, maybe even before getting into just, just the, the, the disordered part because these particular researchers did look at subjects that were classified as having binge eating disorder. So as the DSM would quantify it, they went through the, the evaluation process. So it wasn't just somebody who randomly eats too much. It wasn't somebody who said, yeah, I binged one time, you know, that was awful. It's somebody who repetitively has a problem. And I will tell you, as I, as I have in the past, if, if you've, we've been in this conversation together, that in my own professional bodybuilding career, where I was voluntarily, of course, dieting to very, very aggressively low levels, you know, it's, it's never easy, but there were very specific times, different contest preps that I just could not control my binging. I mean, I literally felt like I had binge eating disorder. Like it was just repetitive. It was cyclical. Every time I would binge, I would of course go into almost a, a bulimic exercise purging process. So 
now that I've been just like, okay, now I can't eat any carbs for two or three days and I've got to do two or three times of cardio, which of course then precipitates another binge. And when you can't get a handle on that and you feel the pressure, which is part of what we're going to discuss today, it's a very difficult cycle to get out of because now that question, is it the food or does it have nothing to do with the food? That becomes very tangled. It becomes a lot of both. And you can try and find a unifying theory of everything and say, okay, this, this is the thing. Like this is the, you know, is it the chicken or the egg? Like we, we, we think we're going to find that. And possibly we could maybe narrowly put one on top of the other as we'll, we'll maybe chat about at the end. But at the same time, I think that's probably a person to person issue. Um, and I, I want to bring up just a little bit of a background story that, that in a parallel way may, may explain this. So Robert Sapolsky is somebody I mentioned quite a bit. He is a neuroendocrinologist and primatologist, recently retired from Stanford. And he is somebody as a neuroscientist who spent 50 years in the field, wholeheartedly believes in, believes in determinism. And his seminal book is called Behave, and it's all about, he studies the amygdala and aggression and just all those things that make us act impulsively. And, and he has asked the same question his entire career. When somebody does something aggressively, like a serial killer or a murderer or something you know, to that nature, what was happening the moment before that decision? What was the one thing, the straw that broke the camel's back? And he said, everybody's focused on that. And rightly so, we need to know that. But what was happening the day before? What was happening the week before? What was that neuroendocrine state for the last three months? What was their childhood like, nature versus nurture? When their brain was developing for 25 years as an infant through early adulthood, what were those forces that changed it? For the last 50,000 generations of that person's ancestry, what were those environmental conditions that changed the DNA that that person was even born and wired with? So we always want to point to that one moment, as I said, but all of those other things have impact. So just as I was describing myself in, in the context of my entire 20-year competitive dieting career, what was it about those one or two contest preps that made it horrifically difficult when other ones went perfectly well? But what about the way my brain actually is? What about just all of those other layers that could be triggers or context points for me that may not be for anybody else? And so, as Dr. Sapolsky would point out, as soon as you think you find the answer for one person at one moment in time, don't think that that's going to translate perfectly to every person at every moment in time. So just a little context and framework there to, to make sure that you know how deep this topic is. It's not just that one moment of weakness, quote unquote, or you know even a week or a day or a contest season. But there are some things that just get to the nature of our own entire brain chemistry. So back to this particular study, they had 33 females aged 28 through 63, median age 45. 
Uh, as I said, they were diagnosed with binge eating disorder. Their BMI on average was 37. So, you know, they're getting pretty, I mean, definitely overweight, probably clinically obese. Well, matter of fact, definitely clinically obese, potentially or getting close to morbidly obese. Matter of fact, the BMI range 27 to 48, somebody who is at 48 is morbidly obese. Uh, this was interesting. I, I don't see this in a lot of studies but they wanted to make sure they looked at the, even things like the mean income. So I, I would say at the time, this was studied 2006, potentially some of the research was done in 2005. That's, that's a little bit above average. I think the average income right now in the US is about 45,000. So this was probably just slightly above that. 15.7 years on average of education. So if you kind of squeeze that apart for 33 people, there were probably some who were high school graduates and some who are college graduates. So this, you know, gets a little bit tilted toward at least, you know, some of these people were, were in that category. And, and the reason that's important is because with 33 subjects, it's not the biggest swath of people you could study, uh, you know, in a survey study where you may have hundreds or thousands of people reporting this was, an, this was an experiential experimental study where we're actually testing something. And so you can't have that many people, but I, I guess they just wanted kind of that middle class, you know, at least in the lower middle class kind of average person. They, they didn't want people who may be living in, you know, food deserts and, and in poverty and, and struggling with those kind of things or people who are highly affluent and have their own chefs and so forth. It's, it's pretty, pretty straight down the middle. So whatever that means, you know, I, I think that's, that's at least good to know. So here's, I, I put this in here knowing that there, it was not readable, but I wanted you to show exactly how they designed this study because they gave these 33 women little handheld computer devices. So, um, you know, not, you know, probably about the size of a phone, but more about the size of a brick. So if you remember like if you've ever seen like a grocery store clerk running around hitting UPC codes to make sure they got the right inventory and so forth, it's kind of one of those things. And um, for an entire week, six times a day, they were prompted, a little alarm would go off and they had to go through a tree survey. Um, you know, in the last three hours, have you binged? Have you not binged? And then depending on that, it's like, you know, you start going down these, these ancillary questions and so uh, it, it, it's an interesting part of this, because I thought as soon as I was reading through the study, I thought, well, okay, this is really cool. They've given them these handheld devices and it's going to be a real time response like, oh, shit, I just binged. Let me go fill something out, journal it or something. And, and I guess in a sense that that would have some value, but instead they wanted it to be something that's maybe not on their mind. Like, you know, this isn't, this isn't a tool to penalize you. Like, you know, every time you do something wrong, you have to fill this out and you know, you're, you're a bad boy, go sit in the corner. But it's uh, it was more of just, everybody's going to get the same response, you know, nine in the morning, noon, three o'clock, six o'clock, six times a day, this little chime is going to go off. And it's just a reminder that it's, it's your time to go fill this out. And they, they got a really high level of response because that's how these people were paid. Every time you do that, you, you know how you go to a study and you're getting paid 10 bucks or hundred bucks or something like whatever you do. 
this is how these people got paid. Every every time they would do this, that was that was a penny in the bank, so to speak, for for their their ultimate uh, study income. So let's see. I already told you that uh, it was ninety three percent compliance. So six times a day, um, seven days. That's forty two potential times per person, and in that one week. Uh, 264 binge episodes were recorded and I should have actually done the math. Let me, let me do a little bit right now uh, because let's see, I said there were 42 potential uh, opportunities for people to respond times 33 people. So that was 1,386 times that people had to log in. And I, I, I don't know about you. I, I don't know your eating history if you've ever binged, but I, I can't say that I've ever binged more than once in a day. You know, it's typically you're getting hungry, getting hungry or whatever psychological pressures there. You're in a calorie deficit. If you're going to overeat, I mean, to me, that was always, you know, I would get full enough. It wasn't like two hours later, I could do it again. So anyway, um, but 13, so two, 264 binge episodes uh, in a week, I should, I should do a little bit of math, more math here. Let me see. Um, 264 divided by 33. So that is eight binges per person in a week. So that's about a binge a day on average. Um, so again, you know, this, this becomes very cyclical, but here's, here are some of the things that, that I thought were kind of interesting. And this is, this is why that that survey tree was so helpful. They wanted to really look at context. You know, what are the common denominators of what's happening? So most binges occur in the kitchen or living room, uh, heavily correlated with those locations, as well as being alone, which I kind of agree. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's almost one of those things where when somebody's watching us, it gives us a sense of accountability, or at least a sense of positive shame where I'm not going to do this in front of somebody like my spouse knows I'm dieting or my friends, I'm not going to just start slamming food. It's going to be one of those closet type things. Uh, in the way that these were categorized, most of the women uh, classified them as large or unusually large, which I think is a little bit of a matter of semantics because to classify something as a binge, it has to be large enough in your mind that it's not just eating one cookie or something. But here's, here's where they started really finding some interesting things. Uh, it was always, I should say always, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, the, the, the highest correlation was negative mood. So when they would do this survey and they would have to, you know, every three hours, say in the last three hours, did you binge or, you know, whatever that, that survey was like, um, and if somebody said yes, then they would go through the, the appropriate questions. And there was always a substantially negative mood that had to do, number one, and this is how I listed them in, in order of how they were ranked, um, their own unease with their weight or their body shape. So what was giving them the most stress? What was creating a negative mood? It was frustration just with their body. And so as these women would report, 
what were you thinking? What were you feeling? What was the context of the negative mood that precipitated the binge? It was always this myopic focus on how I look. When I start thinking about how I look, I binge. Others, and, and I think I have some numbers here on the next slide, uh, were relationship issues. You know, if, if things aren't going right with your significant other, uh, mildly associated were work-related issues, and then a couple other things that uh, they didn't list because they were they were so small. So here's how they attributed it: like when when we get down to the bottom line of analysis through these surveys, the subjects had an opportunity to say, what do you feel was the cause? And, and that's always interesting because if you've ever had therapy, you've been in a counseling session and a counselor is discussing things and they're trying to get information, they're creating these conversational uh, pathways with somebody sometimes they're doing something in a way that's almost distracting. So they're asking you questions to see how you're going to respond. And it's, it's different than what you think you're, you're being assessed for. So this was, so the, the survey was set up similarly where they're, they're looking for things that only the researchers could put together, especially with statistical analysis, but the subjects had an opportunity to say, what do you feel went wrong? And 47.7% said they attributed the binge to how they felt. They, they could, from a self-awareness perspective, recognize my mood was spiraling. You know, it was definitely in my head. Whatever was happening, that's what caused it. 17.5% attributed it to having broken a food rule. So let's say that in your mind, you feel like this rigid diet that you're supposed to be following and I'll use ketogenesis as an example. I'm not supposed to have carbs. I know I can't have carbs. I haven't had a single gram of carb in six and a half days. This, this is the rule. This is what I'm supposed to do. My trainer told me this or Dr. Oz told me this. And then, damn it, I had a potato chip or I had that piece of cake. And that would break the whole binge wide open. So it was that feeling of having a rigid diet and I, I lost it. I broke the rule. And that, you know, even breaking it slightly just, just broke the dam wide open. 14% was just a sheer hunger. So the question again, is it about the food? Is it not about the food? 14% said, I just hit the wall. Like I was done. Hypoglycemic, starving. And interestingly, 21% of people said, I have no idea. Just, just I don't know. I, they have, which is interesting because even with the ability to kind of check boxes, they didn't even feel confident enough in their own interoception or ability to survey and analyze themselves, which I, I think is actually a pretty interesting comment in and of itself, because we've discussed this a lot in other research reviews, how important that interoceptive emotional intelligence is, the ability to really understand what's happening in your own body. 21% of these women with binge eating disorder had zero of that quality. They could not even check a box. They were that indecisive. Um, again, that's when I, when I talk about a couple other studies that I cross-referenced, that, that's going to come back into play. But at least we know the highest by far amount 
48% was they, they just knew it was, it was something to do with their mental state. So the next level of question, just getting back down to the bottom of that tree, uh, that, that perceived loss of self-control. So another question, um, you know, however you said the context was, whether it was hunger, negative mood, I don't know, let's get into, you know, maybe why can you, can you understand uh, maybe not what the context was, but like, like what was your goal? Did you have any cognitive volitional input into that decision? 27.3% said they, they think they were engaging in that binge to change their mood. So I had this super, super negative emotional state and I went to that first bite of a food that I knew I probably shouldn't have. I knew it might be kind of a trigger for me, but I but that was my attempt. And, and I, I think we can all understand from our other conversations about dopamine and so forth and memory, hippocampus, all that, that that's why sugar can be as addictive as something like cocaine to the brain. You know, that, that's what those encoded memory cells do. Your brain itself, this is an important point. And this is, this is another one of those really, really big framing concepts to this whole topic. Your brain is an entity that has a life outside of your own consciousness. Think, think of yourself asleep. You're not controlling your brain, right? You're asleep. You're unconscious. And even if you were in a coma to that level of being unconscious, your brain is still active. Your brain is still running. Your brain is listening. Your brain is keeping your heart and your lungs working. So think of your organic brain for a second. Another, another thing we've covered in these research reviews, when you start getting high, high, high levels of cortisol and anxiety and neurons and synapses are firing chaotically, your insular cortex, your, your amygdala, everything is like in this fight or flight mode and, and just you're, you're feeling that anxiety. What does your brain, not, not you, not your will, not your mind, not your consciousness, what does your brain want? It wants to calm that down. How does it do that? Sugar. Let's go eat some sugar. That makes everything better. Let's get the parasympathetic nervous system of digestion stimulated. So the sympathetic nervous system calms down. And so now, is it all about the food or is it about something other than the food? To your brain, you could make an argument that it definitely has a food component. Your brain wants to use that glucose level to change its own internal physiology. So 27.3% of these women said, yeah, I just, you know, that's what I do when I'm in this negative state, I typically go to food and food makes me feel better. Um, and, and that can be even environmental, you know, mothers who use food to nurture, oh, little Johnny, you, you hurt your knee, you're crying here, let's have some ice cream. You know, we, we start encoding memories like that. Uh, and then, you know, you're 16 years old and you break up with your boyfriend and mom reinforces that, oh, honey, it's okay. Let's go have some, let's go bake some cookies. So, so those are kind of things. Those aren't the only things, but those are the kind of things that can layer in that attempt to change mood. Again, 20 and a half percent breaking a food rule. Like again, that's almost the same percent, by the way. Like the, there are some people who are just that rigid as thinkers and it's, it's going to be feast or famine. Uh, almost 18% 
just said for pleasure. Like, you know, I didn't think I would binge. I thought I could control myself with one piece of birthday cake, but it was, you know, maybe it was that glass of wine on Valentine's day. And then that caused a binge. You know, I went into it just without anything else other than I just, you know, I thought I could handle myself. I, I, I wanted that food for pleasure and I, and I, it ended up leading to a binge. Again, 16% unknown. And uh, as another little question off of that part of the survey, uh, almost 19% said they didn't really feel out of control. Um, you know, and again, it's, it's a little bit a matter of semantics, how you define a binge. <laughs> but I know, for example, now, like I'm, I'm not dieting hard. I don't have any external pressure for a contest. But yet, as I've mentioned in the past, I'm in a state where after a very controlled increase of my weight to regain some strength after some injuries, I kind of peaked and held that for a while. Then I decided, okay, I'm going to be coming back down. So last year I lost 10 pounds. This year, my goal is to lose 10 pounds. Again, just, I mean, that's, that's so easy, 10 pounds in a year. So I'm not pressured by it. I don't have a lot of rigid rules. I'm not tracking macros to the nth degree. And so every once in a while, I just have a little extra food. It's like, well, gosh, you know, this is definitely a day that didn't, didn't help me because I ate that extra serving or I had this. That's, that's what people may associate overeating with no loss of control. When I have been dieting and I said I would classify it as a binge, that's when you're in the kitchen and you just can't stop. You have no control in the aftermath looking back to most people. It's even scary. Like I can't, it's almost like an out of body experience. I cannot believe I ate that much food in that short of a period of time with such little regard for control. That's most binges as most people would classify a binge. This 18.6% who said they didn't associate it with, with loss of control. So there was probably to them just kind of what most people would call overeating. It was like, it was definitely a binge. I, you know, I didn't want to eat that. And these are women who are classified with binge eating disorder diagnosed with that. But, but again, it just wasn't that out of control. So that's interesting too. I think that stems maybe uh, from a, a different degree of severity, the kind of pressure that they may feel, maybe even their overall calorie intake and calorie deficit. But let me, let me read this conclusion word for word from this study. The primary purpose of this prospective study was to examine the contribution of restraint and hunger as compared to affect-based, so mood, in the experience of binge eating among patients with binge eating disorder thus allowing us to simultaneously evaluate various aspects of primary models of, of binge eating disorder. Major findings are as follows. Negative mood was significantly greater prior to a binge episode compared to non-binge times, but significantly greater still at post-binge times. And that's, the, that's one of the keys that kind of surprised them. Most, so, so the greatest correlate was that a negative mood state triggered the binge. You know, we could, we could say that without hesitation, but then the negative mood state got even worse post binge. And I think most of us would say, duh, that makes sense. Of course, I'm going to feel the guilt and the shame of that, but that is a big step. That is something that shows 
that the mood state, you know, it, it means so much to us. We're putting so much pressure on ourselves that then when we fail or seemingly perceive ourselves to fail, then it gets worse. What's that going to do for the next potential binge? It escalates the anxiety just a little bit more, just a little bit more. You get more and more on edge, a little bit more wary of the next time, and you almost make that tripwire more sensitive to doing it again. So that's part of what drives that cyclical nature. Um, hunger was significantly greater prior to a binge than at non-binge time. So again, uh, mood, negative mood state first, actual hunger second. So it's not all about the food. It's about negative mood. But in second place, it's definitely about the food. If you're trying to eat too low of calories, you're trying to eat a zero carb or low carb diet. We know that that's the single diet methodology that causes the most binge eating. Um, doo -doo -doo -doo. Number three, participants attributed binge episodes to their mood more frequently than to hunger or abstinence violation, meaning the rigid rules. Um, so it went again, just, just as a quick summary, negative mood precipitated the binge more than anything than hunger and then violating that, uh, that rigid food rule. So I, I looked at this and I thought, okay, that's, that's, that's important. That's enough for us to discuss. I think we can have some really cool conversations about this and, and, you know, maybe, maybe talk through some sub methods on how to guard against these things and how to maybe gain a foothold in, in decreasing the instance of binge eating. But then I decided, let's, let's look at what some of these other studies were actually investigating that may be different. And I found this one, onset of dieting versus binge eating in outpatients with binge eating disorder. So onset of dieting, the dogmatism of saying, I am on a diet versus binge eating. This is a very interesting thing that people are probably talking about more now than ever because of the um, higher interest right now in intuitive eating and what some people call non-intentional weight loss. So not necessarily having that intentionality to lose weight, but just changing some food values, some habits, being a little bit more uh, interoceptive and intuitive. And so there's a whole movement of people who think that intentional dieting, the fact that I am not happy with my condition, my health may be at, at serious risk, I am going to go on a diet. There are a lot of people who say that's horrible, you shouldn't do it. If you go on a diet, that's going to cause more harm than good. That school of thought is out there. This is what this study wanted to show from or investigate in the International Journal of Obesity. So conclusion, I'm not going to go through that entire this entire study like I did the other one, but um, conclusion, a substantial subgroup and by substantial 65% of binge eating disorder diagnosed patients report that binge eating preceded their first diet. Dieting didn't cause binge eating disorder 65% of the time. They were a binge eater first, and then because of binge eating, they started using diet to try and modify that. So, you know, 65%, I don't care if it's 50-50, I wouldn't even care if it's 35% instead of 65% in the other direction. 
at least we cannot quantitatively say dieting causes most binge eating disorder or binge eating period. Um, most people were just overeaters by nature. So that may get back to the negative mood state. It may get back to their upbringing, their culture, their economic status. There are so many layers that go into how we actually interact with food, our relationship with food. Pick up any nutrition or nutrition biochemistry textbook, chapter one. It's always about all of the factors that go into our relationship with food, always going as deep as our culture, our heritage, our socioeconomic status, our parental uh, influences and their attitudes toward food. So for somebody to say dieting, causes binge eating disorder would be a, a pretty high egregious misrepresentation of science. Can it, for some people, can it make it worse? Can it create that cyclical nature, as I said, of it, you know, causing harsher dieting and back and forth? Absolutely, of course. But I, I, I thought this was interesting and it was important to say because of some of that current pop culture pull towards saying, yeah, nobody should diet. It's a bad thing. It's horrible. It's unethical. It's, it's, it's evil to even ask somebody to be on a diet or for you to do it yourself. You're just setting yourself up for trauma. Not necessarily. I mean, obviously it can, but let's move on to the second study I looked at. So uh, journal of adolescent health. So now we're going to look at young people when, when some people actually start getting body image issues and wanting to lose weight or change their body composition and their appearance. Which dieters are at risk for the onset of binge eating? A prospective study of adolescents and young adults. So once again, I'm not going to go through this whole study, but I want you to at least know what they were searching for and what they found. Conclusions. Depression and self-esteem appear to be particularly salient factors involved in a relation between dieting and binge eating onset among adolescents and young adults. Early identification of these factors should be a priority to prevent the development of binge eating problems among at-risk individuals. Um, hang on a second, guys. I'm about ready to lose power here. That would be tragic if I lose you guys right in midstream. I got to plug in my power cord. Happened to us on a podcast this week. That was kind of funny. What happened twice? So uh, let me go through that again. Depression and self-esteem appear to be particularly salient factors. So very much like the first study that we really dug into, it was a mood state. What causes binge eating? I mean, let's go back up to the title slide. Which dieters, young adults, are at risk for the onset? When do they start getting dragged into this awful cyclical behavior? And you know what they found? was it again was a deep, deep mood state. They were unhappy adolescents, depression, self-esteem. And as we've seen because of social media, one of the horrible social correlates, especially with young women, uh, is that with the in-your-face, insta-perfect people that everybody sees, uh, this is even happening more and more. So a typical cycle is that teen or adolescent uh, you know, just starts having a more negative and more negative body image, self-esteem goes down. And then it's not necessarily that that would cause them to just instantly binge, but they're probably going to engage in some, some exercise or some, 
you know, you know, whatever their version of calorie deprivation may be. And then that kind of creates that cycle. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar, um, David Mathis, he is a coach who works for Lane Norton. Uh, he's actually from up near my hometown in Northern Indiana, and we've been friends for a very long time. And uh, he this week, because I guess uh, in the last week or maybe this month, there was some kind of a, a um, eating disorder type of, of recognition day. You know, I don't think it's like eating disorder month or something, but he posted pictures to remind people that even men can struggle with this. And uh, he showed this picture of him, I think very soon after maybe he had left the military, he was in the army and it, it was, it was harsh to look at. I mean, he was a skeleton. I mean, as a, what should have been a young, healthy male, uh, in the military or just out of the military, he, he looked like he had been in Auschwitz. It was, it was scary that somebody from, you know, with his level of it, And of course, you know, now he has a master's degree in exercise science and he's a nutrition coach. But at least back then, he was very, very tied to wanting to look a certain way, to be fit, and he just took it that far. And if you would talk to him, you know, I, I, I'm sure he had different versions of anorexia and or bulimia, but typically tied to those states are also some form of cyclical or at least episodic binge eating. And so... Yeah, the, the tragic thing is we are seeing an increase of this, at least on the, the young female side, because of some of those things just being so in your face with social media. So their conclusion here, early identification of these factors should be a priority um, you know, for at-risk individuals. And, and that was one of my key points to this study. They identified groups that were just fine. You know, it's just like, they just, these kinds of things don't necessarily bother everybody. So back to our hardwiring, going back to Sapolsky, the primatologist, neuroendocrine scientist, uh, you know, the environment that we were raised in, even things like sibling relationships and peer relationships at schools, there are so much that goes into what makes our entire composite personality base and so we just can't say in this kind of topic or this kind of field of research that here is the answer. But we can make statements like this, that, that binge eating problems are much, 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 much higher for already at-risk individuals. So this one ties it very much to the first study with it being an emotional state and even certain personality traits. because. Obviously, when we're talking about binge eating and binge eating disorder, we're not talking about a majority of the population. It's not that everybody deals with this, but the people who do, it can obviously be catastrophic. So I am very interested to hear your thoughts and maybe even some of your experiences. Um, as I said, I you know, I, thankfully I can't say I ever had a binge eating disorder, but for maybe two, I think possibly two, one for sure, maybe two, maybe three times in a very rigid contest diet structure by rigid. I mean, I was still using macronutrient based flexibility, 
but it was high pressure. It was okay. Now you're a pro bodybuilder. Now you've got to look your best. Now your career is on the line. You, this is, you know, all eyes on you. And that kind of pressure definitely added to that anxiety. And every time I would push a little bit too far beyond my physical capacity with hunger and so forth, then bam, you know, there's a binge. Now that negative mood state is even worse afterwards. And now I'm probably going to get into some kind of a, an exercise bulimia with, you know, doing too much, which creates even more hunger. So I can definitely through that survey chart my path, how I ended there, but I'm very thankful that, you know, it didn't end up being part of my absolute psyche. As soon as that stimulus of the contest was over and I was getting enough food, I wasn't in that, that process, you know, I was fine. So here we go. Binge eating, eating disorders. It's all about the food. It has nothing to do with the food. I think we kind of discovered here. It's definitely part of both for different people, but, uh, thanks for unmuting Amanda. Jump on in. Yeah. So, um, I can relate to a lot of what the, um, the research study said, however, my experience with binge eating was actually after my contest. So, um, I, it wasn't like an emotional thing. It was just like an unsatiable thing. Like I, I just felt like I couldn't get enough, like a bottomless pit. And yeah, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I ate that much. And then sometimes, most of the time, the next day I would be like, yeah, I got to go run it off, do some sort of like extreme cardio to make up for it. Um, and it wasn't until like, like it took a while after my contest prep the last time to just to let my body like normal, normalize. Like I don't have that. I, I wasn't feeling that way anymore, but for some reason, after I was done with my contest the last time, I just, it was always late night. And it was always when my husband was on a mission somewhere and I was alone and I was up until like two o'clock in the morning, just watching TV and shoving shit in my mouth. So I can relate to a certain extent, but I feel like my experience with it might be one of those like differences where they, I don't know where, I don't know where I would fall into that category in the research study, to be honest with you. It's more common than you think. And, and I agree when you're looking at psychiatry, psychology, uh, obesity type research, most people are not going to be looking at competitive bodybuilders and like, you know, because sometimes that external goal really does drive us to the goal. Like I, I eventually got to a great condition and I eventually, you know, even during those tough spots, I did compete. Um, but I would hundred percent agree with you that once that pressure is over and you don't come out of it safely, this, this shows the very, very just tangibly tied uh, food and non-food related context, because I'll explain one to you. One of the, one of the pro contests where I really did my best. I mean, this is when I started placing like mid pack top of the field in my, my divisions and so forth as a pro 
Um, I just happened to be on vacation with my family. So I dragged my family to this contest on the East Coast. Then we were on vacation. And I just, I guess I had a meal or two. I just ate too much. I was with my family. And so it just seemed like I, I want to make sure I cater to them. And I just couldn't stop either. And talk about feeling horrible. Talk about a negative mood afterwards. It's like you, you've worked 26 weeks, you know, six months to look like you look and to see that disappearing by the day, that was very depressive to me. And I was just in a shit stink of a mood for weeks as I just realized every single day, like I just undid six months of work in, in a week. Um, so, I, I, you know, for me, that moment started being about the food, but then it was the negative mood state that would make me eat more that would then, you know, now your blood sugar is doing this. Your hypothalamus is... Uh, you know, looking at your body with, you know, chemoreceptors, et cetera, saying, you know, your body fat's 4% body fat. You're so far under your metabolic set point. My body, once it starts getting that food, it's just driving me to more. It's, it's like a wild animal that just caught a prey and hasn't eaten for, you know, a month. Right. So it was very, very physiological, but also psychological. But as I said, it's, you, you would be surprised how many people this happens to post weight loss. I mean, and then I would, you know, like, I would be like, okay, it happened the next day. I would just like tell myself, I'm just not going to do it again. It's going to be fine. And then sure as shit that, you know, that the next night or two nights, I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to have a little bit of this. And then that like opened the floodgates, like you said, you know, so it was, it was, it was tough. But, well, even, you know, anybody in, you know, without a performance or physique sport goal, it, this is, this is still what happens to even people and, and why there's such high recidivism in weight gain. Um, some people just start eating a little bit more like, okay, I've lost 50 pounds and then they gain a few pounds and gain a few pounds. And maybe two years later, they're back up where they were. An awful lot of people do that kind of in mass. It's like, wow, I hit my goal. It's, it was great for a couple of weeks. And then it was like that one vacation or that one party or that one social event. And then it just like, then it starts skyrocketing back up. So this, this is really, really prevalent. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I would not have even thought to bring, bring that to everybody's attention. Any, uh, any other thoughts, guys, any comments or experiences? We're just going to like air our dirty laundry here. Everybody's going to know like, wow, Joe's actually a pig. I can't believe he was doing that. Go, go oh, ahead, Charles. If, if you're, if you're a pig and then there's no hope for me. <laughs> um, I, I think it's funny that uh, it's interesting that no one binges uh, broccoli. Um, it's, it's always, uh, it's always, uh, you know, the chips and the, uh, and the ice cream and, and stuff like that. So if you can figure out a way for us to binge broccoli, then you, you probably will, uh, be a very wealthy man. Um, <laughs> I've asked that question before. Like, like, how many chicken breasts do you think you could eat? How many cans of tuna do you think you could eat? And that's like, whoa, like, not many. <laughs> or even apples. Like, how many apples do you think you can get? Yeah, <laughs> get yeah. Probably a number three. You, feel, you, you probably will be struggling. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So, but yeah, I, so, so for me, um, um, this is a very helpful conversation because. Um, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if I, I will meet the um, so the DSM definition of, of binge eating disorder, but um, 
that has been uh, a struggle for me. And typically it comes down to one decision to, you know, in the evening. And if, um, and, and many times it's, it's a situation where it's the you know, end of the day, I'm, I'm exhausted. Um, you know, the, the stresses and pressures of, of the day, maybe I hadn't been sleeping well over the last couple of nights. Um, and I make, I make one decision. All right, well, let me, you know, I can eat a little bit more. I've, I've hit all my macros. I can, I can eat a little bit more. Well, you know, having this one thing is not going to kill me. I've been pretty good all day. And then, um, um, as you know, uh, she had mentioned prior, the floodgates kind of, kind of open where if, um, and you've talked about this before, where if I would just sort of push my, push my, pushed away and remove myself from the environment, just as simple of, as leaving, you know, where I typically would kind of set up and, um, you know, eat and, and maybe be watching TV or whatever, and just kind of going upstairs, taking a shower and going to bed, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I would be, I probably would be okay. At, but for whatever reason, um, and I know this consciously, but for whatever reason, I, I choose to just sit there. It's like, almost fit like a being like a baby sitting in a dirty diaper kind of thing. You know, <laughs> you're just at a certain point, you're like, well, oh, well, it's just, it is what it is. And um, sorry for the gross analogy, but it, it, it kind of feels like that to a certain extent. You're just yeah. kind of doing your own, you know, dread or, or, or whatever. Um, and yeah, so I, I've experienced that and working out's never been my problem. Um, I'm really, I'm, I'm pretty disciplined for, uh, you know, most of the day, but it always comes down to one decision in, in the evening. Uh, for me. And um, I, uh, so there's a couple of things I, I wanted to say. So you mentioned, you talked about the artificial sweeteners mm-hmm. um, the other day. And um, I have noticed though, and I, you had warned me about this when we first started working together that many times what I would do at the end of the day also is like, well, I, I kind of want something sweet. So let me, let me go get a, um, a diet drink. Like I might go to a diet ginger ale and it would just all I'm noticing now uh, that it is starting something in me where it's not enough. Once I, once I drink that, I want, I want something more substantial. That's, that's sweet. And, and so um, I'm going to sort of make it another goal for me. It's to just kind of give that up um, uh, at least, you know, maybe indefinitely. I don't know, but I need to just kind of mm-hmm. figure out a way to give that up and uh, figure out how to get through that. Two, two things, if I could jump in that you said that are really yeah. important, because I want to, I want to, I want to hit on what you just said, because there's a real physical trigger for that. So as we know, just on your palate, when those taste receptors taste something sweet and diet ginger ale is a perfect example, your hypothalamus goes into overdrive, like, whoa, sugar, like here comes food and it makes you go into a, a hyper hunger state. But what usually pulls you back out of that state is a positive energy balance. It's, it's you, you get into that feast mode. That's a literal biological drive. And if that you had actual calories there, as soon as your blood sugar starts to rise, your hypothalamus calms down. 
since this truly is a sugar-free calorie-free drink, you're just ramping up that hunger. And so like that, that's a real reason. So if you do that, cause I'll do the same thing, you know, last night, you know, after dinner, I'm like, okay, I'm just kind of done. I'm not hungry, but I feel like I want some of the flavor. So I get a little, you know, diet Coke and, and that's kind of my thing. So now, uh, thanks, Stacy. You got, you have a good day. Um, like as part of my self-awareness, I know what I know in terms of what this is going to happen physiologically. So I just get like a half a glass and I just say, this is it. Like, this is my habit. I do this to sip on and then I'm done for the night. I'm out of the kitchen. So I've, I've kind of set a boundary. Like I'm on guard. I know this could potentially make me hungry. It could make me crave more. I get that Coke zero. And then all of a sudden I want a few tortilla chips. And then all of a sudden, okay, now after I had that salt, like now I want a cookie, like I've been down that road. So I just have to volitionally put those boundaries up. Um, but you know, the, the first thing you said there, Charles, just about, you know, having the discipline and it's always that one decision link, what we talked about today with last week's research review on motivation and the fact that with the hippocampus, the memory cells and how we encode those memories, like when, after when, after when, after when we create a habit I've done this 21 days in a row. I, I haven't overeaten. I had my dinner and I didn't eat. That, that's how we do truly create those long spans of success. But as the research showed last week, you're still only one bad decision. Just like you said, just one decision to going completely back the other direction. So it is important to create those habits and build that memory for success but just don't, don't leave the humility behind. Don't think you've made it because those of us who can sabotage ourselves, those of us who can binge eat like an alcoholic, just being one drink away, like that's all we are. And so you just have to still be on guard. Very good points on your part. Good stuff. Are you uh, jumping in? I saw Lainey or Becky. We'll go uh, Lainey here. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. I was definitely a binge eater and I kind of chuckled when you said I couldn't imagine eating more than one binge in a day because one binge led to another binge because it was a, oh crap, I just, it was a mood that led it there, but then it was, I was going to punish myself because I let myself get there. And so for me, kind of coming out of it, it's been something of being mindful of my mental health is just as important as all that other stuff. Mm -hmm. And for me, I could not have done it on my own without support or without the accountability because I couldn't see those, the parts of me that I now know are part of my character, that I am disciplined, that I am motivated. All I could see was I, I've got all this food and I was, I was a hider. So people didn't know I would go in my car and I would go off and do it. And then I had to throw the trash away. So nobody saw it. Mm. Um, so I think it's, for me, it's kind of empowering again. And I know I say that often, but when you're in the, the height of the binge period, and for me, it was secular, it would be things going on. Um, you feel completely like hopeless and out of control and as soon as you start having those wins that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, you realize I can do that in this area too. But I, I, 
I can't imagine anybody doing it without support and without a help. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I think, Lane, that's exactly right. And that's where cognitive behavioral techniques come in. So out of all the psychological models, the three main ones, you know, I always say biology first, biology first, biology first. But that doesn't mean that behaviorism and, you know, CBT isn't critical because that's where we say, okay, I can now frame my biology in. I can do the right things, whether it's a little bit more intuitive eating or a little bit of this or maybe not so hypocaloric biology is not going to sabotage me. Now I need to start building in that, you know, perhaps it is self-compassion, you know, it is saying, okay, so you binged today. You also had 23 and a half hours that were fantastic and you didn't binge yesterday. You know, that was a good day. So you start using some of that skill transference and start building your confidence. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm, very much short-sighted when it comes to what a licensed mental health therapist would actually use as tools, but I certainly know the effect and how that is absolutely necessary. So I think you're, you're dead on. Any, uh, any thoughts, Becky? Yes. Now I'll tell you when I had COVID about a year and a half ago, I binged, I ate everything. Everybody's like, my goodness, you're going to weigh 300 pounds. <laughs> I was because people, they were saying people my age with the health risk, you're going to die. So I thought, let's eat. I ate McDonald's and I hate McDonald's. I ate McDonald's pancakes. I hate their pancakes. Now it's like I can't look at it. The only thing I'm good on is with my Reese's. I only have three of the minis and I'm good. I can control that one. And it's the only one. Well, man, that's, that's, that's the thing you need more of, not those crappy pancakes. Keep, keep the Reese's around. So I don't know if, you know, just being scared. So I did binge and I gained weight. Most people lost weight during COVID, not this one. She mm -hmm. gained. Yeah. And, you know, Becky, you know, maybe there was some fear, you know, and maybe, maybe even was, as Lainey said, kind of that self-punishment and depression, like, man, I can't believe I did that. I'm supposed to be the person who's got so much discipline. And so then it just, I mean, I'm telling you, man, that self-loathing is powerful. Like, you know, and then the, the physiology does kick in. I mean, a lot of people forget, you know, we want to think about our mental state, which is critically important, but the power of those blood sugar fluctuations. And when all of a sudden you're getting, you know, insulin desensitization, and now you're, you know, you feel hypoglycemic. And when you're that hungry physically, mm -hmm. you're going to eat more. And that's why, you know, people will often note like when I'm dieting and eating less, as long as I've kind of flipped that metabolic switch, I feel great. I feel fine. Why am I so hungry when I overeat? Like I, as soon as I even have that, that kind of free meal or something, people note that they're hungrier. And again, it's that blood sugar fluctuation that can really, it's, it's the one, two punch. It's the mental state and the psychology, but then also that, that chaotic physiology. So I'm guessing you just had a perfect storm of a lot of things happening. But it's back, back on track now. Good. Yes, you are. I know that yeah. for a fact. Yeah. Thanks, Becky.